You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is an absolute belter. Marcus Brigstock has got a lot to say and I'm going to let him get on with it. Really excited about this one. Recorded live at the Gilded Balloon last year. This is Marcus Brigstock. Short walk and sitting down immediately. Perfect. Um, we should probably start with, what did you do to your leg? Well, firstly, it's worth pointing out that Edinburgh is not a city, beautiful though it is, well set up for a person on crutches. <laughs> this being a place where you can leave where you started to go where you're going and travel uphill, and then on the journey home, also travel uphill. <laughs> city designed by Escher. Two of you. Fine. Good. Uh, So what I've done to my legs specifically is I've ruptured my Achilles tendon and ripped all the muscles. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, yeah. People love a wound, don't they? (laughs) I don't Uh, know if that'll show up on the recording, but there was a lovely, the audience aren't mic'd, but there was a lovely chorus of oohs there. Yeah, I've I've ruptured, not broken my uh, Achilles tendon and and ripped the muscles in the the back of my leg. And have you, as a result of that injury, cancelled or postponed any performance? I am. Stu, the living embodiment of the word trooper. Hey, I am. I am a soldier to my art. I am. Uh, yes. No. I've, I haven't cancelled anything because uh, fundamentally, actually, uh, there are two things at work here. And the first is lovely, and the second is cynical. The first is the Fringe and the Edinburgh Festival is the greatest thing in in my year. This is. Brilliant. This is the biggest arts festival in the world. This is the third largest ticket selling event in the world after the World Cup and the Olympics, which only happen every four years. This is every year. And the combined festivals sell more tickets than anything else. Uh, And most of the people here are paying for you to watch them. They're paying more per seat in the room for you to see them than you've paid to see them because they want to do the thing. And I am very privileged, genuinely privileged to be a part of that. And and I so I'm very passionate about it. Added to which the uh, margins are sufficiently tight that to take a couple of shows off would mean that I'd lose an absolute fortune. So, um, okay. And not only are you uh, uh, appearing at your show still, um, yes. but you're also at the end of it. And I, yes. I, I mean, we mentioned this, I don't want to sort of spoiler it, but in mm. certainly in the show I saw, mm. you danced. Uh, yes, I did. Go-go style. Big time. Yeah, Big time. <laughs> at the end of the show. Well, you were completely committed to it. And I, as I tweeted at the time, yeah. it was an incredibly unself-conscious moment. It was very yes. revealing. Well, I'm very pleased that it seemed unselfconscious because I feel very self-conscious yeah. whilst doing it. Well, particularly because this year's show is is actually different. It's strange that we should be having this discussion this year because the show that I'm doing is storytelling. It's just mm. stuff from my life. I've gone to, I've made a huge shift uh, just to try something different. And the end of the show is a true story about the fact that I used to be a podium dancer. Uh 
There's no need for a sort of <laughs> snort of derision like that. More than half a lifetime ago, I was genuinely a uh, employed as a podium dancer. And so I discussed this in the show and at the same time held down a job on an oil rig. All right. <laughs> not not as a dancer. I wasn't ever engaged as a dancer on an oil rig. They don't have those yet. Um, so, uh, but it's true. And so I discussed this. And then at the end of the show, I set up this thing where I went, obviously, that was half a lifetime ago. I couldn't possibly dance like that now, could I? <laughs> and the audience went, hooray, brilliant, dance, 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 like this, which I did. And then the gag thing of sort of, no, I can't dance like that anymore, was proved exactly right during the second show when this injury took place. Oh, and so you injured yourself dancing? That was doing it. Okay. Yes, the audience thought it was utterly brilliant <laughs> they love a wound and they i do. grabbed the microphone stand and went you've been lovely i think i've broken my leg and hopped out of the room and people were like yeah fantastic okay. so, uh, so yes so what prompted the change then i mean you're known i guess to most people here as uh, and most people listening at home as uh, a political comedian so why mr Crosspants? yeah yes uh mostly because i wrote a show last year called the brig society which was looking at uh, austerity and coalition politics and what has happened since um, since the coalition government took over uh, in the UK. And I, I'm a slow reactor, actually, and somewhat less cynical than I think some people would credit me with, in that I think a coalition is a terrific thing because I think it much more closely reflects how we actually live our lives. Everything mm-hmm. is a coalition. You make arrangements with your friends and your family and your loved ones uh, to achieve the things you want to achieve. And you can't do everything that you want to do, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, this particular coalition seems to have been one party going, yeah, go on then, mm-hmm. while the others more or less do exactly what they want. But anyway, I was slow to react, and so I hadn't written a political show since this very significant change since 1997 we've been under a a Labour administration and so I wrote the most political show I've ever done and I toured a hundred dates and by the time that was over I had no interest left in discussing what this government were doing I'm doing a, a topical show every day but it isn't it isn't political. It isn't really satirical okay. in the same way. So I was just done with it, but I didn't want to miss the fringe. And as it turns out, like I've always been a bit allergic to comedians who only talk about themselves. I think, really, can you not find a more interesting subject than that, Russell Brand? Can you not? Well, do you know, Russell, for me, I'm, I could, I'd count myself a fan uh, but only of about 15% of his output, sure, okay. which is when he's talking about anything other than Russell Brand. Mm-hmm. He is brilliant. Mm-hmm. His way with words is breathtaking, stunning. I really, really admire him. Unfortunately, the most interesting thing inevitably in Russell's life is Russell. Um, and so I've been a bit allergic to comics to talk about themselves, but I thought as it goes, uh, a story where I went from being a 24-stone goth uh, I was five foot nine at the time, 24 stone goth. And in under two years, I weighed 11 stone. I worked on an oil rig and I was holding down a part-time job as a podium dancer. As stories go, not too shabby. Really. So, so, but have you enjoyed talking about yourself? Have you felt yeah. like, oh, I see why Russell does it. This is oh, great. totally. It's fantastic. What you do, <laughs> right, in terms of, this will be very short in terms of the content of this podcast. What you do is you do stuff and then you tell people. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's how you write comedy. Do stuff. And then tell them. And that's it. 
and leave out the bits that are just information. Try and only tell them the bits that are funny. That's it. That's the process. Okay. So it's been... And, and we're, well, with, with regard to that process, even that kind of uh, uh, light treatment of that idea... Um, within that, there is the issue of like how much of the stuff that you say in your show, how much of the storytelling stuff is true. I mean, I get the sense it's one hundred percent. Every word is true, and you don't change timing or people's no. perspectives or anything like that. No. It's a it's a reportage. No, it, it is in in this instance, it's a reportage. You leave out information, so there's a big story, a long story that I tell in the first part of the show because it happened very recently, and uh, actually it's still happening now as we speak. I have been suffering a low level of testicular discomfort uh, for uh, nearly two years now, uh, but it was about eighteen months before. I thought, as a bloke, you know, you get to about 18 months and you go, well, that's not going away on its own, is it? That's, I think we can say a looser trouser is not going to take care of that. And then you begin to think, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I put it down to um, UKIP. I thought, well, because it coincides almost exactly with the significant political rise of UKIP as a force in Britain that my nuts have been aching. And predominantly the left one, which is what made me think it might be political. Um, so, and so, so there's a story there of sort of self-examination of, of my plums and then going to a doctor and then ending up having a scan done by a parent at my child's school, which is very unexpected. I walked in and the man doing the scan. And so, you know, things lined themselves up in a way mm. that I went, right, well, I'll, I'll say all of this and leave out all the stuff that isn't you know that isn't funny so it's been it's been lovely i will return to uh, satirical um ranty based stuff because uh, because that's also what i like but i will also i hope come back to more of what i'm doing this year because it's it's been uh, despite the leg thing it's been brilliant i've really enjoyed myself this year sure and i'm i I say i'm a bit less stressed do you think it's given you a, a different perspective on comedians who talk about themselves or do you still do you consider that you've sort of briefly taken a holiday in being that self-involved um i suppose i've i've never actually i mean i was to say i'm allergic to comedians that do that i'm not really I, I i love what a lot of them do it just i don't think it's the most interesting version of them very often so whether it's changed my view of them or not i don't know because you mean, are you, you're someone who I think of. Um, I think I first met you at the Altitude Festival, which yeah. you set up with yeah. uh, Andrew Maxwell. Was yeah. it? You set it up together, and Andrew was on this show a couple of days ago. Yeah, he's got a very. I mean, he kind of marries the two. He's this sort of stories, you know, as if yes. he's a guy in the pub telling stories. And there's also a lot of sort of political ideas yeah. in there as well. But you are yeah. someone that I I kind of see socially hanging out with more of the kind of journeyman. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who I mean? Yeah. The yeah. sort of comedians who are more like. And I've, I've mentioned it, I haven't quite got further than... In the street performing world, we'd call them buscarados, the right. kind of people who walk around in their costume the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a parallel there with, although there isn't a costume, there are stand-up comedians who walk around in their character yes. all the time, some of whom are your friends. Yes, yes. So, so you don't think they're I'm less like that, I think. Yeah. I, I think of myself as less like that. Sure. Whereas, uh, you know, I mean, the conversations that I have with people, the, for example, the people I follow on Twitter and the people that I sit about with, the comics that I mm-hmm. sit about with, I don't consciously try to steer the conversation in the direction of politics, but it's the thing that interests me the most sure. by a distance. Sure. Not just party political stuff, but social politics. I always want to know what people think. Uh, including people whose opinions are very different from my own, and including people who I think are 
uh, either lying or thick or stupid or misinformed or, you know, I, I'm probably more interested in what they have to say than anyone else. Because okay. you're like, wow, how do you, my God, really? You wake <laughs> up in the morning and you, 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 you know how to read, don't you? And you can log on to a computer and you can open a book and everything and you don't think climate change is a thing. Sure. Oh, my God. What, what do you incredible think, life you lead. What do you think it is in your past, in your upbringing maybe, that, that drove you or that drives you to have that sort of inquiring attitude? Um, well, I suppose, I suppose the strongest likelihood is that I, I wasted the amazing opportunities afforded to me. I went to boarding school when I was seven. Okay. which is sort of, to some people quite shocking. It wasn't to me. It was perfectly normal. Everyone I knew who was seven did the same thing. It's on your seventh birthday, your parents looked at you and went, well, I think that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> and off you went. And, uh, you know, I met my parents again in my early 20s. Turns out they're absolutely delightful. <laughs> um, lo- no, lovely people. Uh, it's very hard to work out which ones are family. But, you know. Uh, and so, and I squandered all of that because I had some issues, which is in part what I'm talking about at, at, at this year's show mm-hmm. i got sort of sidetracked by addictions uh predominantly to food and then later to alcohol and drugs and all the rest of it and so i reached the age of uh 19 and i had a gcse and, and nothing else uh, just the one uh, in woodwork so the most useful gcse of all <laughs> um but i knew i was i sort of knew i wasn't thick you know because i read for pleasure but i wasn't very interested in the rest of it so i think what happened is when i then went back to sort of researching stuff and really asking questions about stuff on my own terms, I have began to find, it, to find it genuinely fascinating. And I remember when I, the first time I went to the Hay on Wye Literary Festival, and I was like, I had no idea these existed, where people get together in a field and exchange really complicated ideas. And for those struggling to keep up, there are various uh, sort of strata of people to explain the information in simpler and simpler ways sure. further down the chain and then and, and somewhere in that chain I sit going right I get it now and then I in stand up sort of try and explain it in in simple ways that are accessible and comedically uh, pleasing you know so self-education has become something that I really genuinely enjoy having hated school so I, maybe it's that, maybe that the curiosity comes from there. Is that, and is that, I mean, because you're not just someone who participates in the field of education, self-education, mm. politics, you're yet, hey, on why? I can sort of imagine you being carried around it because you're kind of the king of those things. You are, you just, you produce an incredible amount of material on yeah. the radio. Yeah. You're a very well-known and very popular cultural commentator. And unpopular Yes, so that's sure? an important that's an important part of this apparently. Which oddly, th- my um, my delicate ego finds difficult to cope with. Even though I know perfectly well that the Daily Telegraph are likely, broadly speaking, to absolutely hate what I mm-hmm. what I broadcast, uh, I still found it immensely hurtful when they did a big sort of attack piece saying how truly dreadful I was. It was like, oh no. And it really, really bothers me, which is sort of a bit pathetic. It's also probably... Well, is, uh, it, is it pathetic if they're sort of, if a, a broadsheet newspaper is having a big personal go at you? Well, it's pathetic in as much as some very sweet people defended me and said, <clears throat> it's very easy for the critics. But I'm a critic. 
I'm not a critic of artistic endeavours for the most part. I'm sniffy about what Russell Brand and Frankie Boyle do. What a waste of Frankie Boyle. Can you imagine if he used those powers for good? Yeah. <laughs> oh, just, he's, he's a genius, Frankie. If I had his way with words, if I could boil things down mm. to in the way that he can, and that, I use the word boil advisedly. <laughs> if I could boil things down like that, I, oh, I'd just be delighted. And his targets are these... People who fully don't deserve it. It kind of breaks my heart. Anyway, uh, but I am a critic and, and I, I gob off about things and it's perfectly reasonable for people who disagree with me to go for me. So it is a bit pathetic of me to sort of go, well, that wasn't very fair. Uh, and I just have to sort of keep the ego in do check. You, do you think that in your material you go for people as well? I do, although I've tried, I have tried and it's difficult uh, to avoid the more personal end of things mm. if i think someone's lying climate change is a big one for me right and i happen to know that a lot of the people who say that it isn't happening are simply lying they're not they haven't really convinced themselves it isn't happening they're just lying i will go because for they're in the employ of because you know, they, they know because doing. they know perfectly well because they're, because they're not thick and the information's out there and you have to go to a very small circle of information that says no it isn't no it isn't no it isn't no it isn't and it's funded by you know they will say you know you're sort of dominic lawson's and stuff will say well, no it isn't funded by the old companies well it is it is. And it keeps coming out that it is. And the Koch brothers or Koch brothers or whatever, Koch, I think, will stick with. Uh, so there you go. There's a personal attack based on a very childish thing. But the Koch brothers, Koch brothers, uh, have funded uh, a great deal of anti-climate science stuff. And they are, they're, they're, oil, they're oilmen, amongst other things that they do. And so I sort of think, I sort of think, no, I will. I'm going to go for you personally because you're, you're, you're lying and that's dangerous and it mm. matters. But I've tried much more in the last sort of four or five years to not go for people on a very personal level. Is, it, is that because you've experienced people going for you and feel I, like you need to it, modify that? Mate? It may be. It may be. I'd like to think it's more just I've got a little bit older and realised, oh, that's not that's not really good enough, is it? You can do better than that. Okay. I mean, I did, you know, in the last show, I said I talked about Gideon Osborne, not George. Gideon changed his name from Gideon to George because he felt Gideon might make him seem somehow elitist and posh and out of touch, <laughs> failing to spot he has a wooden face and lying, bulging eyes. So there's a, you know, there's a, another personal attack. Well, that is a personal yeah. attack, exactly. Well, I don't know, it's interesting, I don't know if you know about Osborne's family, but his father, Geppetto, said, uh, you see, so I don't mind that because Osborne is in a place where, where what he thinks and who he is and where he's come from matters. But I then explained that I was at school with George Osborne, not literally, but I know people who were, and I was at the next school over because those are the places I inhabited. And so I know what is wrong with those people mm -hmm. because they should be working for Foxton's estate agents mm -hmm. rather than running the country. One or two of them in government is very good. It's important because they have a lot to offer. When it's most of them, we're screwed. And so I know those people, and so I don't mind going for them a bit. And it's also why the Telegraph then go for me, because I am a traitor. And because, and presumably because they consider you an important target because you're, you've got cultural influence. I'm one of, well, and I'm one of theirs. I ought to be one of theirs. I mm. shouldn't be kicking up such a stink about this sort of thing, because I have a very comfortable lifestyle. Why on earth should I bother? Uh, kicking up a stink about this sort of thing. I went to the same schools as those and people. And is, is that a criticism that's ever levelled at you by audiences? No, is not it, really, it, because heckles, heckles are never that complicated, really. Sure. <laughs> no, I mean, they sort of... Uh, it would be more interesting if, if they were, you know. Yeah. But I... 
do like most comedians do. Bill Bailey's the best example of this. I expose my vulnerabilities before anyone else can get to them. Sure. I was lucky enough to be uh, to support Bill Bailey very early on in my career. And uh, what happens is you go out and you do 20 minutes to an audience that are sitting there going, I wish Bill Bailey was on. <laughs> and, and you sort of want to go, so do I. <laughs> it's why I'm here. Uh, but uh, after sort of five or six shows, you've seen their show and you'd go home because why would you stay? I stayed for every one of Bill's shows and watched. And it was mostly the same every night because Bill is a master craftsman. Mm-hmm. He does a brilliant thing and I hope I hope he doesn't mind me giving it away. Uh, it comes on uh, at the beginning. Uh, 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 is it uh, uh, lovely to be here in uh, uh, Woking? So uh, anyway, uh, meatloaf regional winner uh, and makes it look like he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, and then he look- picks up a guitar yeah. and plays brilliantly and sings brilliantly uh, with very complicated ideas that delight the audience and they go, but he doesn't know what he's doing and now he's done that. And, sure. and you go, right, and it's a very neat little trick. I, for years, wore a corduroy suit on stage as a stand-up. It became my trademark. My DVD is called Planet Corduroy and can be found in many a bargain bin. Um <laughs> And, and, and uh, free on YouTube. And free on YouTube <laughs> entirely, yes. Uh, and I wore a corduroy suit because, I, I mean, I happened to have one and I went on in it one day and I realised it lowered my status. Okay. In a brilliant way. Yes. I went on and the audience went, there's no way this bloke makes me laugh. He's a supply teacher who's wandered on at the wrong event. Sure. And it lowered everyone's expectations. And then you come out with something and they go, I didn't expect that. This guy's awesome. Okay. Right. And it's a, it's sort of a trick. I don't do the corduroy thing anymore because things have changed and, you know, but, uh, and well, and also because the suits became so smelly, they're they're (laughs) capable of doing, what other things are doing my show without me. When you say things have changed. Well, things have changed because now uh, most audiences, not all, but most know who I am when I come on stage. So, so there isn't a trick. So now it's the opposite. Now it's probably more more that I confirm a few things about myself when I come mm-hmm. on rather than pretending mm-hmm. that anything's particularly different. You know, so people think of me as being posh because I am and opinionated uh, because I am. And so I will walk on stage somewhere and go, well, isn't it nice to be here? I love what you've done with it. And it, and it sort of confirms what people think, and then sure. I unpick that, and blah blah blah. So you okay, know, they're kind of tricks to get to get a gig going, you know. Sure, and they work. So this is Marcus. Rarely have I wanted a conversation to continue quite as much as I did this one. He's so passionate. So informed, so opinionated, really inspiring. And his awareness and acceptance of his own flaws is really engaging too. It's the last time I can plug this now. I'm interviewing Jared Christmas for a live ComCom pod at 5.30pm at Firebug in Leicester on Sunday the 16th of Feb. And later that night at 8pm at Handsome Hall, I'll be previewing my new hour, comedy-festival.co.uk for details and tickets on those and links to the the Handsome Hall one. Um, I think that's pay-what-you-want.info for for tickets if you want to pay something in advance and secure a seat. Um, Thanks for all your donations to the show. 
Uh, they really make a difference to me and all my machinations for new projects and new ways to pick people's brains. Thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough. If I was treating you like a, a street show crowd in the olden days, uh, I'd be sure to say that this is what I do for a living. I mean, we all know that I'm working hard as a comic, so that's not really the case. But what I will say is that every time you make a donation to support the show, as well as beginning to cover me on the Edinburgh run you're listening to now and making me more inclined to take risks on similar projects in the future and helping me buy better equipment and pay people who help me, it also, I realised this the other day, it also makes me want to work harder. It's starting to feel like one big, long, slow street show and that pleases me no end, so thank you all again. As usual, if you'd like to donate anything from 5 to 50 quid or more, it's up to you. There's no obligation. Just go to the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com. And if you can't support me with money or you don't want to, that's fine. You don't owe me. You can help me out by rating the show on iTunes, subscribing to the ComComPod YouTube channel, and or sharing this podcast or the video with a friend. Thank you very much. That was a big old speech. Thanks for staying with me. Now, let's get back to the brilliant Marcus Brigstock. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I, I want to talk a, a lot more about this, some of the political stuff. I've got There's lots to talk about there. But just while we're on the subject of that as a sort of a, a strategy to win over an audience or a strategy to unlock an audience, yeah. um, that thing we were talking about before, which is I just want to briefly kind of... Uh, uh, explore that, which is that when I met you years ago, or maybe a couple of times, I'd known you for a couple of years, in the French Alps at this comedy mm. festival you created, um, I overheard you saying to someone else, oh, stand-up comedy, that's just... And then you proceeded <laughs> to very casually give an incredibly good example of how to take an idea, unpack it, pull all the funny out, repackage it, and then deliver it on stage. And I remember thinking, I'm going to look... I'm very much the new boy here. I'm going to look like a total dork if I obviously make a note of that. So I didn't <laughs> make a note I forgot it and I thought I've been saving this I wish, up I wish I'd made a note of yeah. it uh, at the time well it depends with with politics um, which is mostly what I do I suppose if there's an approach to it it's it's say what it is and then say the uh, the mis- and then give away the misconception about it mm-hmm. so uh, you know whatever it may be or you know you could do something provocative and talk about climate change which you know is a divisive issue it splits people up doesn't it between those who think it isn't happening and people who read and uh well it's very difficult isn't it for the hard of thinking who are apparently still allowed a voice Um, (laughs) and so you sort of confirm yourself into a position and then a lot of the stuff that i do with complicated political ideas is take it into a stupid metaphor 
right? So mm. uh, I'm just trying to think of a good example. Uh, okay, well, I have a thing at the moment about how Greece ended up in the Euro. Mm-hmm. This was in the Briggs Society show. And I thought, well, Greece should never have been in the Euro. Goldman Sachs got Greece in. There were entry criteria to join the Euro, which Greece didn't meet. They had too much sovereign debt. They should never have been made a member, but it was inconvenient for everybody. And blah, blah, blah. It's the most boring thing in the world. But what is Greece? Well, they're, they're, they want to get into a thing that has everybody else in it. So then they're like a kid outside a nightclub with the wrong shoes on. Okay. And then you've got an image there and then you're like, okay, well, who runs the nightclub? So the Greeks are outside and France are on the door and France <laughs> say, no, you cannot come in here, shitty Greece. Look at you, huh? <laughs> you are too young. You have too much sovereign debt. You're wearing the wrong shoes. Look, you have curly slippers on. Get out of here. So now you have an image, the Greek okay. guy who can't get in because he's got curly slippers on. And then Goldman Sachs give them fake ID. They're the ones selling the fake ID, which is what they did. And then Greece sneak in and Greek are, the Greeks are inside the club now and they're excited. They're like, woo! That's when they realise the club has a German DJ. <laughs> That's when shit gets scary for Greece because the music is too fast for them. And then I do a beatbox and I do a German MC going, yeah, dash, is my Euro house. <laughs> and the Greeks going, please slow the music down. Don't sure. you have any anonymous or Demis Roussos? <laughs> So explaining things just like you do uh, to a child through through metaphor and creating, building an image is, mm. is the most fun way for me of working. Mm. I also do battering ram comedy, which is, which is take the idea and just kick off on it and just sure. blast your way through. And I, I'm a, I'm a, I made a program with uh, Rufus Hound, really fun, argumental, mm-hmm. and just loved it. And it genuinely, people pretend to be a bit blasé when series come to an end broke my heart when they killed that show and kill it they did um uh i loved it and rufus is deft and he can leap from subject to subject and idea and he's charming and he'll stand up and a crowd will just go wherever the pied piper leads we will follow okay whereas i would sit there and i would take the issue very seriously and i would smash at it with great big hands and 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 get my laughs you know but it was just it really illustrated to me two very different approaches to creating comedy and when you're when when you're actually creating those, are you someone that sits and writes them? In, yeah. do you, are you doing spider diagrams and stuff like that? Or no, what, what's no. your actual what's your notebook look like? What's your writing uh, process? A, a mess, a mess, and full of keywords. So the process specifically is have an idea and then do it on stage. Okay. Do it. The idea Be- before any writing. No, have the idea, make some notes, flesh it out, think about it, give yourself a start point and an end point and a, and a thing to achieve during during the thing. And well, then, what do you mean by a thing to achieve? Well, a thing to achieve would be, well, what is it? Is it a political thing? So do you want to prove the point that, okay. that you're making? Or do you want to reach, for example, with the, the, the Greek economic situation, get yourself into a metaphor somehow, mm, you know? Okay. So it might be as vague as that, or it might, I may have an idea. And then go out and do it in front of an audience. And I've never found a, a suitably humble... Um, description for this process but there is a thing that i think genuinely exists that i call super brain okay which is comic on stage with mic in hand in a gig situation is capable of thinking of things that you cannot think of anywhere else and the delight for me is striking on an idea that makes me laugh in the moment Mm -hmm. and i go Brilliant, and I enjoy it as much as the audience enjoys it, sometimes more, okay. uh, in that moment, because I go, I had no idea that joke was coming either, and then, bam, 
There sure. it is. And and often that's the perfect version of the joke. And the only person I I have met who's capable of thinking like that, seemingly under no pressure, is Frank Skinner. Frank okay. Frank thinks in jokes. He thinks in complete crafted jokes, and I do not know how he achieves it because because sure. it's not like he's so intelligent you can't have a chat with him. Yeah. But something's happening in Frank Skinner's brain where he can speak in whole, fully formed jokes. And it's breathtaking to be around. Okay. Very jealous of Frank Skinner. Sure. Whilst not particularly wishing to be that kind of comic, but I, I see it and go, wow. Do you really think that, that, would you like to see Frank Skinner doing more political stuff? Uh, no, no, actually, no, no. I don't, the, 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 the fact that I've ended up doing political stuff doesn't, it hasn't really led me to to go. Oh well, you're wasting your time because all you okay. talk about Ross Noble is swans riding around on the back of a monkey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I love I love <laughs> I love what those people do, and the comedy I admire the most is not the comedy like my own. The stuff that I enjoy is is different. Bill Bailey, Ross Noble, you know, uh, um, uh, lots and lots of. I mean, the Muppet, the Muppets probably have made me laugh more than anything else in my life. I still watch the old Muppet shows and I still honk like a goose with laughter mm -hmm. at how brilliant they are and anarchic and actually political in their way. But I don't, you know, I liked Bill Hicks because we're contractually bound as comedians to like Bill Hicks. And then comes the day when you realise the hypocrisy in some of what he did and you go, oh no. Um, but no, Let's, I don't, it doesn't bother me okay. if someone like Frank isn't, isn't, it does with Fra uh, with Frankie Boyle, as What's, I said, what? because Frankie has a, a stunning ability to to sharpen his jokes and hit targets and destroy them, destroy them. He's he's brilliant at it. They just yeah. His uh, his Twitter bio gives his occupation. It's just one word. It says sniper. Yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. Well. Uh, unfortunately, that to me would be um, m more evidence of the of the ruination of Frankie, which is that somebody somewhere convinced him that he's the most dangerous man on earth. Mm. And actually what he is, is an utterly brilliant and very charming man. He's a really mm. lovely, he's a guy. lovely guy, yeah. utterly brilliant comedian, really, truly, genuinely brilliant. And I, I suspect the producer on Mock the Week uh, was largely involved in this thing of going, go on, Frankie, go on. There's a disabled kid. There's someone who's been raped. Go get him, Buster. Mm. I'm like, those are not the people for me that I want to see those Exocet missile jokes destroy. I want to see them uh, go after the people who cause pain rather than the people who are in pain. That's a, gr a great thing. It's glib, but someone said to me the, the function of satire is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm. And I do that. I do that when I'm writing. If I write a new show, I'll often scribble that at the top of the page. And then at the end you go... Oh no! Well, I can't have that one then. Okay. <laughs> That's cheating. Okay. Yeah. And do you feel a responsibility then to try do. to make a? Do you feel like yeah. you're making a difference? Do you feel you're contributing to changing people's minds? No, no, definitely, definitely no. I mean, I do, I do really think that I do, but no, not, not, not genuinely. I mean, I sort of while I'm doing it, I go, yeah, we're going to change the world. Come on. And then, and then afterwards, it's important to uh, to disassociate yourself from the idea that what you've done is anything other than tell jokes to people. It is just that. It just happens to be the the subjects on which I am most passionate are the ones, as you'd understand, that I'm most uh, that I find it easiest to be funny about because mm -hmm. I'm passionate about them. And so, and what happened for me was I started off and I, I was a I was a really good 
club comic. Um, and I uh, and I feel all right about saying that, ego aside, because it was such a different version of me. I was very good at, at copying voices and st- styles and tones that I'd seen on television or, or anywhere else. And so I became a, a headliner at Jonglers and mm. stuff, you know, and I'd headline and I'd encore their shows. And I, I just remember after a while, I'd come off stage having encored and stormed it and, you know, blah, 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 standing ovations and all the loveliness. And I just felt like crap. I was like, what's, I don't understand. Why don't I feel great? What's going on? And it wasn't just kind of, I wish I was further up the career ladder. It was just that I wasn't talking about anything that I minded about. Mm. So everything everything sort of thing and as luck would have it um the iraq war came along and uh, lucky me um uh, the iraq war came along and i suddenly found that i did care desperately uh, about that and i felt terribly betrayed because it was very exciting i was at university when labor came into power in 97 and i was like wow this is a thing this is mm. a real thing here we go mm. and i felt very betrayed and I was at odds with audiences very often. Once the war began, there was this very odd attitude that we ought to support the troops, whereas my opinion was, well, fine, but which troops? Ours or theirs? Both? Neither in my case. I didn't want there to be a war, so why would I support either troops? I didn't want anybody to hurt anybody else in a very Mm. naive kind of way, but I I didn't support our troops killing their troops any more or less than I supported theirs killing ours. No one should have been involved in that particular conflict in that way. Not unless everything else in terms of oil imports, weapon sales and all the rest of it had changed first. Then if there's a dictator out there and all of those other things are lined up very neatly, then I would support a war. But otherwise, no. So I was at very much at odds with audiences who mm. went, once you go in, you get behind the boys. And I was like, nope, not me. Sorry. And it changed. It really changed everything I did in comedy. And I was like, no, I'm not going to just write stuff that pleases the audience that I'm in front of. As it happens, once you make that decision, the audience that comes to see you tend largely to be people who agree with you. So yes. it closes itself back yes. up. Yes. Yeah. I was going to. I was going to yeah. ask that. That's that's kind of an issue that, like, I've noticed yeah. on some of your Radio Four stuff, you affect this kind of, yeah. uh, not a disdain, but a sort of a, a you know, a poking fun at the cosy Radio Four yeah. audiences, and they're the people right, to whom so. you're their brightest star. You know. Well, yes, because the the accusations of a liberal elite are absolutely right. I mean, I I feel awkward saying this, but there is a liberal elite. And I'm part of it, and it doesn't reflect the view of most people in the UK. But I'm still glad that there is a liberal elite because I'm part of it. And I don't wish necessarily to reflect the views of everybody living in the UK because our media isn't good enough. I'm not saying those people are thick. I'm not saying they're not even working hard enough to find out the truth or whatever. I'm saying it's too difficult. Most people don't have time. I lead a a disgustingly comfortable lifestyle. I can spend a few days reading the paper, watching the telly, channel hopping and being on Twitter and say I've done an excellent fortnight of research. Mm. And and that's fine. But most people's lives are not like that. Most people uh, were not born with the sort of privilege that I have and have the time available to them and get paid just to gob off on subjects. Most people are busy actually getting things done. Mm. So there is, there is a liberal elite and... Uh, I think it's important to whatever degree I dare to mock it, you know, and be honest about it. Whilst recognising your own place in it. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, full of contradictions but, and, and hypocrisy. But I am, I, you know, I'm, I'm a shit environmentalist. 
Oh, my God. For someone who knows as much about climate change as me, I don't know if I love a bit of South American beef. <laughs> oh, have you tried it? Argentinian beef is sensational. And yet here we are in Scotland. I mean, there's excellent beef here. But I tell you what, if you offered me an RG steak now, I'd struggle to turn it down. And that is this you getting making sure that you've, you've got one in it yourself? Before anyone somewhat, else can. Somewhat, yeah. Although I didn't beat them to it on most of that. There are websites that keep a track of places I've been on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because there is no argument about, about uh, man-made climate change. So instead they have, to, they have to say, ah, well, the people telling you about it still go on holiday. Like, yeah, I do. I do. I try not to and I offset my flights and things like that. But it's still rubbish. <laughs> I wanted to talk about a particular piece of material that you'd done, which I, I thought really encapsulated how you managed to get difficult messages across um, in a way that still means you can have a career as a comedian. Because as you're <laughs> yeah. saying, when you started, I mean, presumably, did you, did you then start doing anti-Iraq war stuff at yeah. Jonglers? Did you start yes, doing those gigs? And they went off. horribly badly. Yeah, I got booed off a lot. That was that that led to an extraordinary thing, which was that I was at the Glee Club in Birmingham. It's a great place to gig, wonderful club. Mm. Birmingham's a wonderful city to gig in because they don't suffer from the blight of regional pride, um, which I really, really like. <laughs> There's a lovely pause there while everyone tries yeah. to work out if you're slagging it off. <laughs> well, I sort of am, but it is also what genuinely endears me to Birmingham because mm. you go on there and go, hello, what's it like here? And they go, it's a bit shit, but we like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, I, I really I really like that attitude. Uh, I think Birmingham's a great place. However, I was very much at odds with that audience. And a man hated me so much, he took off his prosthetic leg and threw it at me. I was kicked from over 15 <laughs> feet away by a man who, who hated me enough to give up 50% of his means of getting home. <laughs> That's a heckle, my friend. That's how you get it done. And that, and that okay, would you talk about in your show? I do, yeah. That took place during you trying to do that difficult material. That was, that was the reason for that. That was around the time of, of the Iraq war, and it was, it was part of the reason why I was at odds with that audience. Yeah, yeah. So, But you have learned to, and it's not just a case of changing your audience, but you have learned to... Package is maybe the wrong word, but to to write in such a way that you can communicate ideas and still make them palatable. And the, the piece of material I wanted to talk about was the um, it's on your Corduroy Planet DVD, yeah. and it's the uh, the Mrs. Brigstock World Rape Tour. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Which the name of which obviously sounds very. Uh, it needs some explanation. Yeah. It doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> doesn't it? Which is that you were having a, a conversation with. No, it's rather it's about your neighbour who yeah. blocked your extension. Well, if you'd like to sort of well, yeah, briefly I mean, describe essentially, the piece. essentially what what happened. So there's a lot of discussion now about rape jokes, and it's interesting mm. because I've done an extended routine about rape, in which, in essence, I do trivialise uh, the crime of rape, but in response to a specific event, which I hope makes sense of it. I was talking with my next door neighbour who had blocked an extension that I had planned and that was really, for a middle class boy, the source of the greatest tension between us. However, he also was fervently anti-immigration and was willing to put about the sorts of lies you'll find in a great many of the tabloids like the Mail and the Express and stuff. And uh, we were talking about... Uh, about immigration and I said I think we should throw the doors open the more the merrier and he did the sort of nervous giggle of a man 
very uncomfortable with the conversation and we pressed it a bit and then he said yes yes you're probably right until one of them rapes your wife and i was like wow Mm. Do you think, do you honestly believe that people are coming here hanging onto the bottoms of refrigerated lorries just in order to rape my wife? I mean, that's a hell of a commitment. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so it went on. And then I imagined a, a, a way in which I could help immigrants by taking uh, my wife to Gatwick so that mm. people could just fly here, rape her and then fly home again without having to clear customs, which is, sure. you know. And then I thought, well, that's not really ambitious enough. What we ought to do really is take it right to them. And so and so it went on and I built a horrific image. But the point was to grow out a disgusting idea mm. that he could suggest and get away with. And the papers do it and other people do it. They can yeah. make a truly disgusting notion and say, well, obviously, I mean, blah, blah, blah. I didn't mean... Blah, blah, blah. And so what I did in that instance is grow it out into the most grotesque, but also a straight line mm-hmm. from his starting point through mm-hmm. to, well, if that is why people are coming here, then then let's, let's, let's do this. Let's take that premise, find the yeah. illogic in it, and then yeah, 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 that. yeah, no, exactly. So it was, it was ultimately not even about the perpetrators of the horrific crime of rape and for the hundreds now of young comics for whom rape is the punchline to fucking everything. I wish they'd pack it in or at least do some reading and research it or something, you know. Uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't even a response to the perpetrators of rape. It was a response to a casual attitude to that kind of bigotry and, you know, and we've seen this week with the Bongo Bongo Land thing from sure. UKIP, you know. Sure. And, and what really impressed me on top of that as a line of argument, but the in the writing of it, because it's framed by... The, I mean, it's absolutely framed and re- repeatedly the telegraph poles, if you like, throughout mm. it are this guy blocked my extension. That's yeah. why I hate him. Yeah. So you were able to play up your own patheticness for wanting to have a go at him at the same yeah. time. So you managed to couch what was an incredibly difficult mm. logic. You know, just following the logic of that is kind of arguably not that funny or a bit too well in, yeah, in, in the constru- painful. Yeah, exactly. In the construction of it, it's mm. too big, it's too much, and it's too grotesque. And if you keep bringing it back to, I am a small and petty man, mm. and end it with this absolutely horrific thing, I think the final image was something to do with a, with, with a it wasn't a genocide, but it was something where people, you know, someone's wife and family and children had been killed and his mud hut had been bulldozed. And he, and he said, but at least I have Mrs. Brickstock to rip. And it was monstrous and it was so disgusting deliberately. Mm. And then I went, plus he blocked my extension. And it was it was a release. Yes, for the audience yes. and for and for me as well because how do you end anything like that sure. so uh you know i th- presumably in the writing in the creation of that routine though there were times when you tried to do that routine and it didn't work were there were there problems were there times oh, yeah. when so i mean that was a that's struggle a, to get that a, piece of material that's a together foxy bit of material <laughs> sure <laughs> to, sure to put together because how do you preview a version of it that doesn't work absolutely it's too much and the answer is you just do it. You just have to do it. And you, then you have to sort of say to an audience beforehand, look, I hope, I hope we understand each other here that this previewing process is me making mistakes. Mm-hmm. When I previewed Godcollar, the show I did about atheism and, and theology and my problems with atheism, the ways in which it's left me feeling a bit alone and scared and all the rest of it, and also the sort of feeling that 
as much as I am definitely an atheist, bandwagons rarely have careful enough drivers. And I felt that I was being bounced along on a on a busy bandwagon with Richard Dawkins somewhere near the front of it and felt very uncomfortable. But the early versions of that were disgusting in terms of the carelessness with which I trampled over other people's belief systems. And mm. I had people leaving in tears and all sorts of things. And they were quite justified. And then I refined it. And then there was nothing in the final version of the God Collar show that I did that I that I felt in any way uncomfortable about, including trampling over people's belief systems, but carefully and having mm. researched precisely where I wanted my foot to fall. And I felt okay about that. And, and you know, w what I loved from doing that show uh, in, in particular, very specifically was, you know, I had a routine in there about, um, about the Islamists response to portraits of the prophet Muhammad mm. and them going nuts. And then I said, you know, I've always wanted to create one of those magic eye pictures of the Prophet Muhammad so that only really patient Muslims would want to kill me. <laughs> I still love it as an image. And then I had one of them staring at it for ages and then going, oh, this is blasphemy, look. And he shows it to his friend and his friend stares at it for ages. And then there's an argument over whether it's Muhammad or a dolphin. <laughs> and I feel perfectly comfortable in, in, in having that discussion because I think that for a non-Muslim to paint a picture of the Prophet Muhammad is entirely, those are not my rules. I'm not a Muslim. Mm. So I feel perfectly okay about that. But what I really liked about it was that several Muslims came to see the show and wrote to me. Mm -hmm. They wrote to me. On Twitter, some of them, on email, and one of them, uh, a letter written on a piece of paper in the old-fashioned way, and said, uh, came, to your sh came to your show, really enjoyed most of it, really didn't like that bit, just so I'd let you know, mm. because that's how most Muslims are, just mm. like most Christians are. And they'll go, I didn't like that. And then they get on with their day. They're not all bonkers. Mm. Some of them are, <laughs> but not all. And so, you know, that, that was an interesting thing. But I needed, I needed in the early versions of that, of the horrible, horrible rape routine and the early versions of, of talking about theology and talking about the parts of religious belief that truly disgust me to bounce off the walls and get it wrong. Mm. And it's where, actually, I was very lucky as a new comic. I was still at Bristol University and I had a huge amount of latitude down there to put shows on in front of students and be rubbish. I was crap and I bounced off the walls and I made lots and lots of mistakes. And when I turned up in London to do shows in the comedy store and the comedy cafe and the ha bloody ha who gave me all my first gigs, I showed up and I was introduced as a brand new newcomer and, and they went, here's this new guy from Bristol or something. And I went on stage and I was really good the for old, five minutes. The old non-London based switcheroo. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I went on stage and they were like, holy shit, this guy works miracles. And then they booked me for 10 minutes and went, no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, I, so we've uh, got about five or 10 minutes left. Uh, if anyone would like to ask a question, then if you ask it through me, that's fab and I'll repeat it for the recording. So yeah. the first question is, the change from your commercial club's material yeah. to wanting to say something, was that an overnight change? Did you totally change your set or did you try to drop things in? How did that work? It was fast. It was a very fast change. And the reason it was fast is the other stuff stopped working. When it was put alongside stuff with intent and research, the other stuff stopped working. It was too inconsequential. And so I ended up very quickly with an entire... 20 minute and then 30 minute and then 40 minute and then hour long set which was political because once I'd made that shift the the more I, I don't want to say banal because I don't think it was really comedy's comedy and it's all valuable if it makes an audience laugh you know I would say that 
uh, some things are beyond the pale from for my taste but i wouldn't see them banned but you know it's all valid but it the the more banal end of things stopped working alongside the stuff that had intent mm. and i lost interest in it it was quick it was within six months interestingly i did carry on at jonglers um uh i did carry on at jonglers and my set at jonglers was about european the european union and European integration and whether or not we should join. And I used to take a straw poll of audience members at Jonglers as to whether or not they had read the uh, European Constitution. Uh, I'd ask first, do you, do, uh, who thinks we should be given a referendum on the uh, on the European Constitution? And most rooms, because of the amount of information available, would go, ask us questions. And then I'd go, right, keep your hand up if you've read it. And so I went on from there about, you know, the way in which we're asked to make decisions. And here we are in Scotland. They're being asked to make a very important mm-hmm. decision without knowing how much of the oil you'll keep and how much of the debt. That's all you need to know. <laughs> how can you answer that question without having fixed answers to those questions? An entire waste of time, but not a waste of time asking the Scottish people whether they want independence. See, I can't leave it alone. It's like a scam. <laughs> But uh, it was swift, but I did carry on and I was political and the comics who tell you that it's impossible to do that sort of stuff at Jonglers are lying. Uh, what happened at Jonglers was, uh, unfortunately, it was a, a combination of things. It was, they opened too many clubs and there were not enough compares of sufficient quality. Comparing a show is much, much harder than it looks and takes a great deal more skill than opening, middling or closing. Uh, and a good compare will steer an evening very carefully and quite brilliantly, and there's only a few people who can really do that very well. So the compares got crap, and they went for the lowest common denominator, and we went in under a year from compares who knew what they were doing to people going on going, <laughs> that shirt's a bit gay, or a table with three women and one man uh, asking the man, <laughs> how much? Really? Really, you're going to characterize all three women as hookers just because that suits you? And then and then it took a long time to kind of wrestle it back. And then the other thing was that, unfortunately, Jonglers understood or the marketing department understood that selling entire packages to big parties of people uh, was good, made good financial sense. And indeed it did. Unfortunately, it drove all the couples out of comedy clubs. And couples are the best people to play to. Yeah. Small groups of friends and couples in comedy clubs. And they don't want to sit alongside a corporate group from wherever and a stag do and all the rest mm. of it. So Jonglers, Jonglers was, you know, was the victim of, I think, of those two problems. There was nothing wrong with the clubs. I had some of the best gigs I ever had at Jonglers. They were brilliant. Loved them. And, and audiences that you might have written off as thick, that was not my experience of them. They were smart people, including the corporate outing from Tesco and the Stag do. They got it. They weren't thick. They just needed better compass. Um, there's a question back there. Yep. What was your pre-political... Uh, uh, well, at the, ti- at the time, um, I did a lot of stuff about... This was 1995, 96 when I started, and... Uh, hip hop was uh, was a, was a big thing, and it was before rappers rapped about much. They rapped about themselves, and they rapped about rapping. 
I'm the number one rapper and a rapper on the scene. I wrap it up nice and I wrap it up clean because I rap and I rap and I rap all day. Just that's all they did. Just rap about rapping and rap about themselves. I'm the best rapper that there is. If you'd say I'm not, then you are jizz. Just rubbish. And so I did a lot of stuff about rappers. And one of my favorite things was, uh, you know, I'd love to see a rapper with low self-esteem. <laughs> Just make a nice change. And then, in fact, I, it wasn't even a rap thing that I did, but it was... Uh, uh, Mr. Bombastic. I used to do this again. Mm, they call me Mr. Infertile, hung like a turtle. <laughs> it worked very well. It was nice. And I, the Oprah Winfrey show predated, um, uh, what's his name? Jerry Springer. Uh, the Oprah Winfrey show was the go-to place for um, for that kind of, you know, well, you know, you've slept with her sister and, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And I characterized all of those people in those shows particularly I had a, a penchant for large African-American women. Uh, I, I was able to characterize them very well and I loved doing it. I really loved doing it and I still look for opportunities <laughs> to get it. Oprah, Oprah, girlfriend, girlfriend. I bought my own microphone, right? And so I used to, I used to kind of do all of that and it worked. It was great and it was really fun. It was only that, then this is a pitfall for loads of comics. If you get a good 20, it is so hard to change it, to have the guts to bin it and move on to a new one. That's part of why I love the Edinburgh Festival, because every time I come here, I bring a brand new show and it's the end of term and it's the beginning of term and you bring a brand new show. And most of the material I was doing only a month or so ago, ending the Briggs Society has now gone out of my RAM in here and is in a hard drive somewhere deep in my head and I can find it if I need to but it's not in there I have a new show 20 minutes is really difficult though you get locked into a 20 that works it's why so many brilliant brilliant comics and I won't name names because these people are my friends but they break my hearts because they're stunning stunning comedians who got stuck in a 20 a 30 and a 40 and have been unable to move themselves forward because it's too scary and it is too, and I don't mean that to, to demean them at all, but to do a new five at the top of your 20 or your 30 or whatever, it's really hard because you don't get the same laughs and, you know, it all it all unravels itself. It's why Edinburgh is so refreshing. It's brilliant. All the ambitious comics are coming here and really ambitious too because they're losing money. It takes commitment to set out your stall at this trade fair and go, hey, everyone, this is what I made. Judge me. I love that. I love that people come and do that here. It's really impressive. And gutsy too. You know, it's not like heroic gutsiness, but you know, that some people might understand. But I do think it's a brave choice to make. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up by asking Marcus something potentially negative. How do you deal with all of those terrible those gigs? Those terrible, terrible gigs. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I you, know. I, I know, know where man. you're coming from. <laughs> well, um,. I was lucky in as much as I started in 97 and there were fewer terrible gigs around, actually. I came up here in, uh, well, I started in 96, actually, but sort of 97, I became professional. There was a gig up here in this very building called the Bear Pit and it was way more scary than late and live. There was a balcony behind where you performed and if you were shite, they'd tip beer on your head. And it was the most confrontational gig and I loved it. 
I loved it. A confrontational gig is brilliant. It'll it'll give you chops. You charge on and you go, come on then. And they'll and they'll push back and then you push back and then you'll fly. What's really hard is a badly run, apathetic gig with, you know, it's hard now. There's so many comics. So people put nights on and the nights aren't really ready and there aren't enough people and the compare's not actually a pro comic with a high standard who will set things up for you in a way that as a new comic you can have a good four minutes out of your seven uh, and 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 that's enough right my first gig was seven minutes long and four minutes were utter shite I i had a rubber chicken in a suit i kid you not and i said i walked on stage and i said i wanted to find a really strong opening ladies and gentlemen i pulled the rubber chicken out of my suit put my fingers in its bottom hole and pulled it apart i went that's the strongest opening i could find well, you laugh. They didn't. <laughs> terrible, terrible. And then all the props ran out and I started talking. And I remember uh, I remember at my first gig on stage thinking, if I can do this for the rest of my life, I'll be very, very happy. This is the best feeling I have ever had. And I still feel like that about this. So the really bad gigs, they just hurt. And it's as simple as that. And you either have the metal to suck it up and go back on and have a good one. Or you don't, and that's also what I love about comedy is it's it's a very it's a very uh, very real and very vivid natural selection. There aren't any shit comics who've made it really big, apart from Paddy McGuinness. <laughs> and on that note, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Mr. Marcus Brigstock. <laughs> So that was Marcus. I think you'll agree. That was riveting stuff. I'm so grateful to Marcus for coming on the show. Do try and see him live. And if you can't do that, then he has bundles of stuff uh, that you can buy. And you know where this is going. You can buy it on audible.co.uk slash cc. I would especially recommend Godcollar, uh, narrated by Marcus himself. It's unabridged. So eight and a half hours of his very funny search for and struggle with faith. And it absolutely eats up long drives. So remember, if you go to that address, if you're looking for Godcollar, go to audible.co.uk slash cc and you can get the audiobook free when you sign up to a trial membership and you'll also be helping out the podcast as well. Thanks to Marcus. Thanks to Pete Jones, James Lowey, BLC. This show was co-produced by Nathan Wood. Thanks to you for listening. Donate if you like, share if you prefer. Next week is going to be incredible. Speak to you soon. P.S. It's Tony Law. It's so good. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.